Book One, Chapter Ten of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood, Book One, The Boy Poet, eighteen nineteen to eighteen forty two, Chapter Ten. The graduate of Oxford, eighteen forty one to eighteen forty two. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith. Ready for work again and in reasonable health of mind and body, John Ruskin sat down in his little study at Hernhill in November eighteen forty one, with his private tutor Osborne Gordon. There was eighteen months' leeway to make up. And the dates of ancient history, the details of schematized Aristotelianism, soon slip out of mind when one is sketching in Italy. But he was more serious now about his work, and aware of his deficiencies. To be useful in the world, is it not necessary first to understand all possible Greek constructions? So said the voice of Oxford. But our undergraduate was saved. Both now and afterwards, from this vain ambition, I think it would hardly be worth your while," said Gordon. He could not now go in for honours, for the lost year had superannuated him. So in April he went up for a pass. In those times, when a passman showed unusual powers, they could give him an honorary class. Not a high class, because the range of the examination was less than in the honor school. This candidate wrote a poor Latin prose, it seems, but his divinity, philosophy, and mathematics were so good that they gave him the best they could—an honorary double fourth, upon which he took his B.A. degree, and could describe himself as a graduate of Oxford. The continued weakness of his health kept him from taking steps to enter the church, and his real interest in art was not crowded out even by the last studies for his examination. While he was working with Gordon in the autumn of eighteen forty-one, he was also taking lessons from J. D. Harding, and a famous study of Ivy, his first naturalistic sketching, to which we must revert. Must have been done a week or two before going up for his examination. The lessons from Harding were a useful counterstroke to the excessive and exaggerated Turnerism, in which he had been indulging through his illness. The drawings of Amboise, the coast of Genoa, and the glacier de Bois, though published later, were made before he had exchanged fancy for fact. And they bear, on the face of them, the obvious marks of an unhealthy state of mind. Harding, whose robust common sense and breezy mannerism endeared him to the British amateur of his generation, was just the man to correct any morbid tendency. He had religious views in sympathy with his pupil, and he soon inoculated Ruskin with his contempt for the minor Dutch school. Those bituminous landscapes, so unlike the sparkling freshness that Harding's own watercolor illustrated, and those vulgar tarvin scenes painted, he declared, by sots who.
who disgrace the art alike in their works and in their lives until this epoch john ruskin had found much that interested him in the dutch and flemish painters of the seventeenth century he had classed them all together as the school of which rubens van dyck and rembrandt were the chief masters and those as names to rank with raphael and michelangelo and velasquez he was a humorist not without boyish delight in a good sam wellerism and so could be amused with the drolls until harding appealed to his religion and morality against them he was a chiarocurist and not naturally offended by their violent light and shade until george richmond showed him the more excellent way in colour the glow of venice first hinting it at rome in eighteen forty and then proving it in london in the spring of eighteen forty two from sammy rogers treasures of which the chief now in the national gallery was the christ appearing to the magdalen much as the author of modern painters owed to those friends and teachers and to the advantages of his varied training he would never have written his great work without a further inspiration harding's special forte was his method of drawing trees he looked at nature with an eye which for his period was singularly fresh and unprejudiced he had a strong feeling for truth of structure as well as for picturesque effect and he taught his pupils to observe as well as to draw but in his own practice he rested too much on having observed formed a style and copied himself if he did not copy the old masters hence he held to rules of composition and conscious graces of arrangement and while he taught naturalism in study he followed it up with teaching artifice in practice turner who was not a drawing master lay under no necessity to formulate his principles and stick to them on the contrary his style developed like a kaleidoscope he had been switzerland and on the rhine in eighteen forty one painting his impressions making water-colour notes from memory of effects that had struck him from one of these sprugen he had made a finished picture and now wished to get commissions for more of the same class ruskin was greatly interested in this series because they were not landscapes of the ordinary type scenes from nature squeezed into the mould of recognised artistic composition nor on the other hand mere photographic transcripts but dreams as it were of the mountains and sunsets in which turner's wealth of detail was suggested and his knowledge of form expressed together with the unity which comes of the faithful record of a single impression the lesson was soon enforced upon ruskin's mind by example one day while taking his student's constitutional he noticed the tree stem with ivy upon it which seemed not ungraceful and invited a sketch as he drew he fell into the spirit of its natural arrangement and soon perceived how much finer it was as a piece of design than any conventional rearrangement would be 
Harding had tried to show him how to generalize foliage, but in this example he saw that not generalization was needed to get its beauty, but truth. At Fontainebleau, soon after, in much the same circumstances, a study of an aspen tree, idly begun but carried out with interest and patience, confirmed the principle. At Geneva, once more in the church where he had formed such resolutions the year before, the desire came over him with renewed force, now not only to be definitely employed, but to be employed in the service of a definite mission, which was, in art, exactly what Carlyle had preached in every other sphere of life in that book of heroes, the gospel of sincerity. The design took shape. At Chamonix, he studied plants and rocks and clouds not as an artist to make pictures out of them, nor as a scientist to class them or analyze them, but to learn their aspects and enter into the spirit of their growth and structure. And though on his way home through Switzerland and down the Rhine, he made a few drawings in his old style for admiring friends, they were the last of the kind that he attempted. Thenceforward, his path was marked out. He had found a new vocation. He was not to be a poet. That was too definitely bound up with the past which he wanted to forget, and with conventionalities which he wished to shake off. Not to be an artist, struggling with the rest to please a public which he felt himself called upon to teach, not a man of science for his botany and geology were to be the means, and not the ends of his teaching, but the mission was laid upon him to tell the world that art, no less than other spheres of life, had its heroes, that the mainspring of their energy was sincerity, and the burden of their utterance, truth. End of Book 1, Chapter 10 Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith.